The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. And we say welcome to Eric Bogosian. Eric, before we get started, let me just give a few of your credits. A Drama Desk Award for the Outstanding One-Person Show, Drinking in America, a slew of Drama Desk nominations for shows like Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, Suburbia, Panning the Nails in the Floor with My Forehead, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, three Obie Awards, and a nomination for a Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Talk Radio. Of course, a slew of movie credits as well. So we say welcome to Eric Bogosian. It's a very good time for you right now between a new show on Broadway, Talk Radio, which, of course, you wrote years ago, but now in its Broadway debut, and appearing on Law & Order Criminal Intent as Captain Danny Ross. So life's going yes. pretty well for you. Yes, it's a lot of fun. Having a lot of fun. <laughs> have a full, uh, full agenda. Well, let's get into Talk Radio first. It, of course, was a movie. It originated in various stages from the, the incubation to where it is now on Broadway. Like You've described four different stages that Talk Radio went through. Yeah, it uh in the early 80s I was getting a a little reputation for the solo work I was doing and I had done it at the Public Theater. I had done it in 1982 and it had come out well. The the work I'd done there was a piece called Men Inside and then I returned the following year and I did something called Funhouse. And uh in the course of this I became fairly close with Joseph Papp, who was running the public at the time. And we we got to the f- next year, and he said, what, you know, what else have you got up your sleeve? And um, I, t- I told him about a lot of different projects, and then I finally said, how about another solo? And he said, um, no, we don't. You know, we've done enough solos here. We don't really do solos. We do plays. Which at the time, they were making that distinction. Just a few years later, that distinction would evaporate as more and more people did solos that were understood to be plays for one person. But I was sort of one of the first people doing that. And so he said, everybody wants to do a solo here now. Dustin Hoffman wants to do a solo. Everyone wants to do it. And so we're not going to – I got to pass on that. I said, okay. And uh, I, I went to work on another solo called Drinking in America. Uh, which was ended up at the American Place Theater. Concurrent with this time, uh, a, f- a friend of mine, I had been on the road and I had been invited out to Portland to do one of the solos. And at the art center there, someone suggested that I work on something that had to do with talk radio because of my voice and also because this artist, Tad Savinar, was interested in talk radio. And he said, I can do all these slides behind you and you can do something having to do with it. So I had been doing all these galleries of characters, and I thought well, the radio is, a, is the people who call in are kind of like a gallery of characters. So I'll have all these people calling in. And I had been playing with this one particular character who was typical of the kind of characters I was interested in, Barry, who was um, sort of the dark side of my personality and investigated that side of myself. In this case, a very ambitious guy, a guy who didn't care much about other people's feelings and and pretty wired up. And I really felt I could use this character, this shock jock, which was a new term that was showing up at the time. 
this is way before Howard Stern or any of the people that we know of today. There were people around at the time. Well, we're talking like roughly 20 years ago, in the mid-80s, right? We're talking, yeah, over 20 years ago. Uh-huh. This is the early, even before that, because as I was writing the play, uh, the guy in New York at the time was a guy named Bob Grant. Mm-hmm. And New Yorkers would remember him as an incredibly rude, right-wing guy. He's passed away since. And he would hang up on people and argue with people and... For me, it seemed like a great vehicle, this character, to to really energize the stage, which was something I was looking for. I was looking for characters who were larger than life, and I felt that Barry was, was that. So we did this preliminary piece where I basically sat at a desk and took calls from these offstage callers, some of whom have actually made it all the way from that performance to the one that's on Broadway now. I, I mean, the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. With, with, with you, the playwright, also being the actor. Right. And I directed it at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was in early 85. Then uh, Drinking in America happened, and it was kind of a hit. And Joe Papp came one night, and he came backstage, and he said, that was a great show. And I said, thank you. And he said, why did you leave us? And I said, Joe, I left you because you told me to get lost. And he said, well, <laughs> you should come back to the public theater. And, and uh, which for me, I have to say, the public theater for me was where it was all happening. That was for me, the, the there was no theater. It was more interesting and more exciting than the public. And I loved being around Joe and being around that place. And uh, he said, come back and you can do whatever you want to do. And this was in a time when, strangely, Things have changed a lot in the theater in 20 years, particularly off-Broadway. And in those days, or let's say today, any play that's in development, quote-unquote development, needs to go through a zillion table reads and stage readings and workshops. and all. None of that happened. The, the script was done the night that we began previews. He put it in the schedule without ever really reading it, and uh, which all I really had at that point were the callers and this character uh, hanging up on them. Then it was up to me over the next six months to come up with a story that would somehow engage this guy, which was it ended up being this character's going, this show's going national. And and eventually I came up with the eureka moment, which was what would happen if one of his if his audience came into the studio and this ended up being in the persona of this character, Kent and Sebastian Stan who's currently playing it on, on Broadway has been getting rave reviews for his performance because it is, it is a very showy piece as is of course the lead role. So, uh, and there we had it. We, we, uh, Suddenly there was this thing, talk radio. That then became the second manifestation. The third was the film of it, where, again, I took the the, the callers one more time, looked at them again, trimmed them, worked on them. But now we had a new addition to the storyline, and that was in 1984, Alan Berg, a shock jock out of Denver, Colorado, had been assassinated. We bought the right for what he said on the radio, and we bought the rights to his story, and I merged some of those story points with the story of Barry Champlain, my fictional guy. The movie is not, by Oliver Stone, is not about Alan Berg. It's about the same guy, except that he becomes more entangled in, in, in this violence. And again, in the film version, you played Barry Champlain. And I played Barry again. And then I, and I wrote the screenplay. And then finally, we then all these years go by, 18 years, and uh, we come up with uh, the, the Jeffrey Richards asking me, what do you think about this, doing this on Broadway? And I said... I spent the weekend thinking about it, and then I thought, 
well, I can only think of one guy who can do it, Liev Schreiber. So uh, do you know him? And, if, and I wasn't even thinking that, of course, he had produced Liev in Glengarry, and Liev had gotten the Tony for that, which can be a positive or negative. I mean, it may be that they finish doing that and never want to work together again. But as it turned out, he picked up the phone, called Liev, and, and, we, and the pieces started to come together. Well, roughly 20 years ago, when the show was being produced at, at the public, you had the chance to take it to Broadway, and you said no back then. Why this time bringing it to Broadway? Have, have things changed? Oh, yeah. I think Broadway has changed a lot, and it's changed in, in ways that even I didn't understand at the time I said yes. Uh, first of all, there are plays that are coming onto Broadway now that push the envelope. Push the envelope, what does that even mean? I mean it just means the audience is more engaged with the drama. They want to... Um, it's not like they're attending church or something. They're there because they're interested in what's going on on stage, and they really want to be... It's not, uh, as somebody called it the other day, it's not a big ice cream sundae, and you just sit back and let it happen. And I think for some of the war horses that we really love, like Death of a Salesman, uh, you know, we know the play so well that there's... I don't know that any of us are really challenged by that play now. We see it as a vehicle for great actors, and it is that, and it's still great to watch. But if a play is about something that's happening to us now, we kind of have to digest it a little bit. And that's something that we think of as drama that has been mainly living off Broadway the last few years. But suddenly, all the economics turned upside down. When a nonprofit theater, uh, the big ones, have a hit off-Broadway play now, the next thing you know, the tickets are 65 bucks, which is, okay, that's what they are. Conversely... Broadway has all kinds of twofers and balconies and 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 student we have a student rush for 25 bucks every night. So we have a way to get a lot of people in who I have to be honest are our peers, our fellow actors and uh, young and students and so forth. And that's really I think key to a lively theater because if everybody can't see what everybody else is doing, then they can't we can't grow as a community. I have to be able to see Oh, that new cool director. Let's see what that guy's doing. That new writer. Let's because I remember when I came to New York, they'd say, "Oh, there's this guy David Mamet. He's doing this thing over at St. Clement's. Got to go see it." Okay, I'll go use my voucher. It's ten bucks. I go see that. Or this uh, this this actor Richard Gere is doing a piece called um, "Killer's Head" by some guy Sam Shepard over at American Place, <laughs> and. You go watch this crazy guy named Richard Gere, who no one had heard of, and do this amazing performance. And that, for me, it was really exciting, but it was also teaching me about writing and teaching me about these were my heroes. Well, as you talk about what was and what is, what was there a temptation to make changes to talk radio since, obviously, talk radio itself has gone from being a regional phenomenon that you had Bob Grant in this city or Allen Berg in this city to now, obviously, we have, whether it's Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh or any of those people, was there a temptation to change it from 1987 to today? Actually, there was no temptation. And I had just I had just updated my place, Suburbia, in last fall and brought it to the to 2006 uh, and that had been that was twelve years old when I did that, and I saw a good reason to do that. The Iraq War being one good reason, and we have a veteran in the play. But this play, uh, first of all, I'm not I'm not expecting anybody to come and learn a lesson about talk radio, and I'm not in I'm not particularly interested in talk radio as a phenomenon. Uh, I am interested in the mass media. I am interested in the scale of mass media and the fact that no matter how large it gets. 
individuals have to be the people who plug into it. And so individuals and their individual ambition become the things that modulate what happens. And so in the case of, for instance, uh, Rush Limbaugh, who for all of his uh, soapbox thumping about this and that is it's been kind of established as not a particularly moral guy. He uh, he needs to earn a lot of money in order to keep up this incredibly lavish lifestyle. And so he'll pretty much say whatever he needs to say in order to um, make these millions. He must make millions. His house is like it said in the papers, $30 million home. So there's this huge gravitational force of money which plays on any individual who enters the mass media. They can be a comedian. They can be a, a talk show host. They can be a newscaster. And I think especially when you're talking about something where people are talking about stuff that's important to them, like a talk show host or a broadcaster, and then we find that what they're doing is being affected by their stardom or non-stardom, what they're willing to do, not willing to do on the air, you know, is... Katie Couric going to do a, that piece about the dolphin who's lost out and well we got to drop the Iraq you know the piece about the Iraq widows let's do the piece about the dolphin out in the bay because people want to hear about the dolphin in the bay so all that stuff I mean it's always been part of it but I'm interested in my part in it and as a performer and as a personality and as an author of things I, I, it was a question I was asking myself uh, just prior a few years before uh, John Belushi had passed away, and I really felt that he was a guy who had been encouraged to be basically destroy himself publicly because there he could get more and more attention the more he did that, and that became sort of the thing. So I know I've given very roundabout. In fact, all my answers are roundabout because I'm I, that's the way I think. I think roundabout. That's why I write dramas. I don't. If I were able to write theses, I would right theses but I don't I can't well let me pluck something out of what you just said and it's it's altering the meaning but you just use the phrase I'm interested in my part in it now you said that Leah Schreiber was your first ideal choice to take on this role that obviously you had written for yourself and gotten to play both on stage and on film which is a pretty rare experience for mm -hmm. for, for creators what is it like for you now to sit outside of this character and watch him since, with the exception of the finished film, you hadn't had the opportunity to do that before. Well, it's a thrill. I, when, when we did Suburbia at Lincoln Center Theater and we put together the ensemble for that piece and I got to see these incredibly talented actors work on my material. And we're talking about the original production yes, in 94. This is in 94. Yeah. And, and, and more recently, too. But this was the first time that I had seen, I guess also when we did the film of talk radio, or when we did talk radio and had other actors on stage with me. But to really be able to sit back in the house and watch people bring to life in the theater uh, stuff that I had written on a typewriter, uh, I get it. I, I just, I love it. And Liev does it I mean, he's huge, and he's doing probably the most complex and difficult character I've written. And so he, his performance is a, is, a, is a real miracle and pleasure every night to watch it. There's no jealousy. There's no feeling like I should be up there or anything. Believe me, it's, a, it's such a hard role. I'm too old now, and it's, I don't want to do it. Um, there's a point at the end of the play that where everything really comes to a huge crescendo. And after that crescendo, there's yet another sort of, I don't want to give it away, but there's this sort of huge sort of blank spot that happens. And uh, when he does that, I remember 
what that was like because it's a really super exciting experience from the stage perspective. And when he's in that moment, I remember how intense that was because you can feel in that moment from on stage, you can feel everybody in the theater holding their breath. And that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but I, you know, I really, really love this actor. I think he brings to his work so many things that are, they're so hard to find all in one person. He's tremendously disciplined. He's tremendously energetic. He's capable of finding very intense, dramatic moments uh, that are full of pathos. But he has a great sense of humor, too. And you have to have that to play Barry. I said to him, the only, I've only said a couple of things to him while we were working on the role or while he was working on the role. And I said, there's one thing I remember is the audience has to believe that you're somebody that people would tune into to listen to. And the audience is going to be thinking about 10 minutes into the show, would I turn this guy on? Would I listen to this guy? And the answer has to be yes. So there has to be something about you that is pleasurable for the audience, even though you you know and we all kind of sense that you're going to be going to some pretty acidic moments as it moves along. There was a recent article, uh, basically about Lee F. Schreiber and, and your show, Talk Radio, in New York Magazine. And there's one sense I just want to read and get your reaction to it. It says, when Schreiber came in, Eric Bogosian thought, quote, my God, I'm looking at myself from 20 years ago, unquote. <laughs> uh, well, that particular day, he was really juiced with a lot of energy because he had just come off a red eye to, to, to fly in and begin rehearsals. And he was being very apologetic and very kind of wound up. And I, I did feel like this is a guy I have a lot in common with. This is a guy I also have a lot not in common with. He's a... He's a sort of physically imposing guy, and I've never felt like that. And he's also a movie star, and I'm, I've done a lot of acting, but I'm not a movie star. And so, but what's amazing is, and, I, and I've said this to anybody who, you know, anytime you want to just wonder who could play this, the guy has to be hungry, and you have to feel it in your heart, that in your gut, that this is a, it's not just the character, it's the, the actor has to understand what real ambition is, and Liev has that. There's a sense that he's he he for all that he's done, he has so much unfinished business, and he's going to keep going and getting things. It's it's exciting to be around him. In that same article, uh, Liev Schreiber says that you were his first role model, quite literally. Who was your first role model? Do you have any role models? Um, Either as a writer or an actor. Role models. I I do remember as an actor. Um, I'm not Jewish. I'm Armenian. Um, but there were Jewish actors who were didn't look like wasps who appeared in the American cinema scene when I was a kid. And it was very exciting. Very exciting to see Alan Arkin show up. And it was very exciting to see Dustin Hoffman show up, particularly Dustin Hoffman, because I look a little like him. And I thought... Wow, a guy who looks like me can be a movie star, and and he can act and he can work, because generally speaking, anyone who's Semitic looking kind of falls between the cracks of the stereotypes in this country, unless you're going to play a, a terrorist or something. And so uh, that was that was cool that those guys showed up. But over the years, there have been many people who have been wonderful role models for me, whether it's Frank Zappa or Richard Pryor or uh, I. I'm excited by people who put a lot on the line and have a good sense of humor and are willing to risk being 
awkward in front of an audience. And those actors and performers uh, are I, I love watching. They're, it's, it's inspirational. As we're talking about talk radio, it's worth mentioning that there's a misunderstanding. People who only know your career, the very surface of it, think that, okay, he did these shows where he wrote parts for himself for a long time and then decided to let other characters come in with him. But the fact is, is you were writing plays even before you did your solo pieces. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, it all the funny churning point happened in Joe Papp's office when I met him, uh, which was in 1982, because, in fact, I thought I was there to talk about my plays. And I said to him, uh, I write, I'm very inspired by Brecht. I'm very inspired by the alienation effect. Now, I had been in New York about six or seven years at this point. And, uh, and I'll never forget, he said, alienation effect. Where did you learn that term? In college? And I guess I didn't realize who I was dealing with, a guy who's very against any of the that sort of establishment stuff, which in a weird way it is. Um, and then he said, I heard you, did, you do some kind of solo work. Uh, tell me about that. And that began my relationship with him with the solo work, which for me was a footnote at the time. It was just one more thing that I was doing. It was a, it was a acting finger exercise. Do a dozen characters in an hour and a half. To me, it was easy to do it. The hard part was writing the plays. And I had written plays. I had written plays that were definitely off the beaten path, but they were... Uh, I had come to New York to be a regular old theater guy. I had seen a ton of theater when I got here in 75. I worked as a gopher at the at the Chelsea West Side Theater, and I had sort of an in to a lot of stuff on Broadway, everywhere. I was totally ready to be part of the establishment. But I, there was something that felt hollow about it, and I saw two productions that year that inspired me. One was a Juilliard production of Midsummer Night's Dream, which how can you go wrong with Midsummer Night's Dream, right? But I felt like it was alive, and it felt like they were loving what they were doing. And the other was a Richard Foreman piece down in Soho called uh, Rhoda in Potato Land, a, a kind of silly title meant to be silly. And it also was very alive and very different, and that drew me to downtown, and that drew me to a, a world that I didn't even know anything about. I was like Alice down the rat, or somebody down Alice, somebody threw down the rabbit hole. Uh, Soho to me was an unknown. I, I'm a I'm a total theater guy. I was theater in those days was all about the West Side. But and, you're saying establishment theater, really? Yeah, but but even the off Broadway, everything was up here. It, it, everything was centered around these these neighborhoods of Lincoln Center and so forth. You were way downtown if you were even in 14th Street in those days. And there was this further downtown, which was Soho. And I met people who took me to things. I remember one night we were walking. This girlfriend took me down Spring Street. We came to a doorway that was about four feet high. It's talking about Alice in Wonderland. And she opened it. And inside were all these people hanging out and dancing and doing crazy stuff. And this was Robert Wilson's headquarters and uh, the, the Bird Hoffman School of Birds. And this was theater like nothing I had ever seen or been exposed to, nothing I knew about. So Richard Foreman, Mabu Mines, uh, Robert Wilson, uh, the performing garage down the street, which I don't think they called themselves that then. But all these guys, uh, and it was a community. And so over time, got to know Liz LeCompte and Richard Foreman and, and uh, Willem and Spaulding and 
all the people who were part of our community and we went to each other's things. And in fact, the the uh, the solo work came about because of um, some interaction I had with Mabu Minds and I just wanted to know how do I how should I make my voice better? And one of the company members said, well, just practice into a tape recorder. And I did that and all these characters started coming out of me. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So I'll, I'll make a piece about that. And when did the collaboration with Joe Bonney begin on your work? Well, it, it, Joe Bonney and I began to collaborate when we got married. We got married in 1980. We had met each other. Actually, I collaborated on a work piece of hers first. She had hired me for $75 to do a voice on an, on an animation she had was making. She was visiting the States from Australia, and she hired me through a friend. I was in, I was insistent that I wasn't going to give away this work anymore, that I needed – I had to get paid. And she paid me $75. And um, we were married two months later. And um, we've been married since. So uh, over time, whenever we worked on things, we would talk about it. And she was – at the time, she was somebody who had worked in film but from a very visual – she was a visual artist primarily. And uh, – so I'd ask her advice, and uh, she directed the first couple of solos, and then there was this sense, well, now I have to go legit, and Win Hanman directed Drinking in America, and then after that, I kind of felt like I had been very comfortable working with Joe, and I felt she could give me insight to things that she really understood the way my head worked, and we just proceeded on from there. So we, from I guess it's been over 25 years we've been working together. In your solo work, I read uh, a quote from you saying that what you were trying to do was put rock and roll on stage. <laughs> Reflecting on that now, do you think what you did was rock and roll theater? I think the key thing with rock and roll that has to be understood on any live performance is or any live performance is that we are anybody who gets in front of other people is playing a character. But definitely watching bands, if you were watching anything from Ike and Tina Turner, uh, Mick Jagger, Jimi Hendrix, they were playing a character. And the thing about it is, is that we went to see those characters. If they were behind a screen, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be that interesting. We want to see them exist up there. And they're speaking to us. They're looking at us. It's one of the reasons why musicals are so understood by the contemporary audience today, because the cast speaks to the audience, talks to the audience. Direct address is tremendously powerful. And many of us... Uh, understand that today. I mean, John Shanley understood when he wrote Doubt that you get a guy starting the play by looking the audience in the eye and saying something, and you're going to get a different energy out of that audience. To some degree, that's rock and roll. And I am somebody who's been in the theater since I was a kid, and I love every kind of theater. I don't have any problem walking into a theater and immediately understand that the fourth wall is missing, and I'm watching some people talking uh, when they did um, Awake and Sing last year uh, with uh, all the great guys, uh, I think that was Lincoln Center. That it was He's Lincoln, Lincoln Center, Center Theater. Ben Gazzara, well. Mark Ruffalo, yeah, Zoe um, Wanamaker. Uh, and, and Liev's brother, Pablo. Um, they, uh, I mean, I have, that's my kind of thing. I'll go watch that stuff every, I mean, I get it. But when you bring in a younger audience, you bring in my kids. They're going to need – they're going to – they almost need a more abstract kind of thing up there. They're, they're more comfortable with that. And there better be something that grabs them by the lapels and gets them to say, look at me and understand what I'm doing. I understand when a, 
I understand why Mark Ruffalo is brilliant in the way he can sing because there's a, a huge amount of craft involved in what he's doing up there. But maybe the person, a kid who's been watching a lot of movies and doesn't understand that what you're watching is all happening right now. There's no editor helping. There's no lighting. There's no, you know, I know from doing Law & Order, we can, I, I know from all my film work, but I know particularly Law & Order because I do it nonstop that, that uh, you know, I do it this way, I do it that way, I do it. Way. The editor's going to fix it in the in the editing room, well, and I'm going to look pretty good. Your solo shows were very much about engaging directly with the audience as those characters and constantly shifting. There were a number of things in the solo shows that I felt were um, very theatrical. Primarily, was just shifting from one character to another. When they first, the first idea of even even calling it a solo show or a one man show was just repugnant to anybody in 1982. In 1982, it would just be like, ugh, I don't want to see anything like that because I know that's going to be some guy's going to come out, he's going to sing a couple of songs, maybe tap dance, do an impersonation. I mean, what could be more horrible? They thought it was your cabaret. Act. <laughs> yeah, it was a cat. <laughs> but but what I was looking for was like a, a very theatrical thing, and there had been something that I had seen in a Stoppard play, which was. John Wood transforming in the beginning of Travesties from one character to another. He takes off an overcoat and he becomes another. They go, he sheds 20 years or something in that moment. And, I, and it was like, wow, that's pure theatricality. I mean, look at that. I just watched a man on stage go become one guy and then turn into another guy. There were other people doing stuff like that. Andy Kaufman did it. Um, and I... And I thought, I want to stick that into my shows. And so I've taught myself how to switch quickly from one character to another. And that became one of the trademark parts of those shows. Well, in, in that New York Magazine article that I referred to a few minutes ago, there's something that uh, Lee Ev Schreiber says, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. Um, he said this was years ago when he was first becoming aware of you uh, at a place called Dance Interior here in New York, which was a, a nightclub, a, a club, a dance yeah. club, I guess, right? He said, um, I saw this nut job doing this sort of queer, insane lounge act. He called himself Ricky D. He was just growling and rolling through the crowd. And the people were throwing drinks and spitting on him, and it was very punk rock. And I thought, here it is, a whole new relationship to an audience, and it was Eric Bogosian. So that was back then, and here we are today playing Captain Danny Ross on Law & Order. <laughs> Over those years, was that you back then? Was it an act? And how have you changed as both a person and as a writer and as an actor? How have you evolved over that period of time. It's funny that Liev mentions that particular night because that particular night I remember and it was I was playing this character Ricky uh, actually not Ricky D Ricky Paul was the name of the character and I um, would get out on stage and I would pretend to be a lounge singer or something and I would insult the audience and I would do whatever I could to rile them up and it was about audience it was about being tired of a staid audience and looking for an interaction with an audience that was more exciting, which I was seeing in the clubs at the time. There were a lot of acts that were doing things like that. There were a lot of people pushing all kinds of envelopes. I, um, but that night I was awful. I mean, I was so awful. I think the club owner didn't want me to, he got really angry at me, never wanted me to come back. And it was really kind of a low point for me in total frenetic, I understood that whatever was going on up there was not my ultimate goal, that as a theater person, I wanted to be able to create a performance that I could repeat night after night, and I didn't necessarily want the audience to confuse me with the guy. There's always an element to that as an actor, but those things were about really being that guy 24 hours a day, and 
really, I'm just a nice kid from the suburbs, and I, I tried very hard to be completely insane in those days, and maybe I was, but I'd be lying to say, I mean, I'm not that. Um, I'm a lot more uninteresting than that. So have you changed, though, over the years, do you think? Sure, I've gotten older. Yeah. Uh, certainly, if nothing else, uh, the success of talk radio changed my life. I mean, when we made that film, I had no idea that... I was working at the time with the most celebrated and popular director in Hollywood, and he had chosen to anoint me in this way. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was ever on everybody's list. I, What I did with that, I don't know. Maybe I'm not the most ambitious guy in the world. I, I kind of fiddled around with all of that Hollywood stuff for a while. But in the long run, I really wanted to stay in New York. And in the long run, I continued to write. And oddly... I get to do a lot of acting now, which is, is is really fun, really terrific. And along those same lines, if you had not written talk radio 20, 25 years ago, could you write that show today, do you think? No. I write all the time. I'm writing plays all the time. I write about a, a play a year. Sort of a, I'm developing this, this library of my plays unproduced in New York. Um, but they're not like talk radio. Uh there has to be something going on in my plays that are about where I'm at right now. Now, of course, if I hadn't done talk radio, then perhaps today I would be still living in a storefront on the Lower East Side, and then maybe I would be full of such angst I might write the great Kafka-esque Dostoevsky and insane piece, and maybe uh, you know they'd find me you know starving and you know my corpse in there one day, and then they'd discover the play and they'd go, "My God, mm-hmm. this is the most." inspired play we ever read uh that's every every anybody who doesn't get produced or anybody who doesn't get the reviews they want or doesn't get satisfaction on some level with plays or any writing is always dreaming of the day in the future when you know they're going to rediscover you and i can't wait for that as well as we talk about the characters that you've created it was interesting to me that you now acknowledge that there's a character in suburbia who is sort of you or you when you were younger and i'm just wondering about whether that was conscious or whether that was something you realized later on that that you were portraying an aspect of yourself perhaps at a different age that kid from the suburbs there's there's different schools of writers and there are writers i mean i would there are writers who sit down and they know what they're going to write about and they know who the characters are and they go i, I would imagine and they sit down and they write it and and it seems to be some uh, 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 a matter of pride for a lot of writers to say, I wrote this play in two weeks or three weeks. I, Harold Pinter said it about Caretaker. Arthur Miller said it about Death of a Salesman. It's like, I don't know, something cool about that. It takes me forever to write my plays, and I don't write them in, in one sitting. I don't really know what they're about when I start writing them. Suburbia began by my writing about a bunch of people I knew on the corner when I was growing up in the Burbs, and and basically giving myself the challenge to write as long, write as many pages as I could where nothing happened. And I was just going to have them hang and make nothing happen. And eventually out of that came this story, and the story built and built, because there were there was a version of it at Juilliard prior to the 
Lincoln Center production, and there was a version up in Boston prior to that. So that's the way I go about it. And often I don't know where I'm going or what the thing is actually about. It was only when I was watching rehearsals from the balcony at Lincoln Center Theater one one afternoon when it suddenly struck me that the whole story of suburbia was the story of the year that I dropped out of college, decided to hang out back in the corner again with the guys I had known in high school, and was pondering my fate. And I basically came to the conclusion that I could go back and and, and try to get what I wanted to get with my life and not worry about whether I succeeded or not. And that was ultimately what the story of that suburbia is. But that's what Jeff comes to the conclusion is that however you slice or dice life, you got to make an effort, but you just aren't going to know the way it all works out. And um, that was the only way I was able to come to New York. That was how I made the decision to eventually come here. I was so filled with fear of not being able to cut it in New York, uh, failing as an actor, failing as a writer. It was only once I said to myself, just go, see what happens, you know, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That was, and that's the story of Suburbia. So then for the production this year at at Second Stage Theater, you did, as you mentioned earlier, go back and you did some rewriting on it and you brought in very current events, the, the Iraq War. Changing that experience that you realized you were writing about your own youth and, and decisions, then bringing in these other elements, this very political, this very current element to it, was that simply to bring the play up to date or did you see the opportunity to to make a different statement with the play 12 years later? It just seemed like, I mean, first of all, the play was originally, uh, the original idea of it was having something to do with the way I grew up in the early 70s, but was set in the 90s when we did it in the 90s. But in the meantime, things had shifted just enough to be kind of disconcerting if you didn't update it. Cell phones, nobody was using cell phones in 1994. Um, there was no internet in 1994. These were things that I felt, ah, put them in, see what happens with them. We went back and forth, but I think that things haven't changed in a fundamental way. The, there was even a picture the other day in the paper of uh, they were interviewing some kids, and, they, and, and I, I pointed to Joe. I said to Joe, look at this picture, because you could see behind them that they were standing in front of a convenience store with something in the Times, and they were interviewing some kids, and sure enough, they found those kids that are hanging around near a convenience store. It's the American, it's where we're at, and I thought it was a good idea to bring it right to now. Interesting, though. Updating that show, but not updating talk radio. Talk radio is still set in the mid to late 1980s. I kind of had to do that because if I updated talk radio, I would have to acknowledge all the things that happened to talk radio in the meantime. And it wasn't, it it was, I mean, in many ways, the talk radio predicted things that were going to happen. um, But I, you know, how would the guy be in Cleveland and not be fully aware of Limbaugh, Stern, uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly, and all the other stuff that's part of this this gambit now? But also things had changed in the world. and You, you couldn't touch those things that had changed. You had to stay set in that. Yeah. I, well, the odd thing is is that uh, we can use a lot of the same terms in the, uh, the, the word Iran, Bush. These names show up. Uh, CIA, all this stuff is there 20 years ago. So 
you know, the, the key thing is I wanted to write a play that was a great platform for a great actor. Uh, I want I think that the I think that at the end of the day, the plays we remember are the plays that are platforms for great performances. And you can say they're about this or they're about that. But really, the, the like like somebody said, Sam Goldwyn or somebody, you want to send a message, you know, call Western Union. I'm not I'm that's not the business I'm in. I love theater and I think that there's something very hard to capture which is especially for contemporary plays a play where the actor really gets to stretch out. We know we can go back to Shakespeare and we can find you know tremendous character. That's why we love Shakespeare. I mean, we have perennial complaints about going to see Shakespeare, finding parts of it boring. Well, the parts we're finding boring are the parts that aren't the soliloquies and aren't the big flashy dramatic moments where that lead guy that you're interested in, whether it's Coriolanus or Hamlet or whomever, you know, Othello is railing and ranting and you, that's what you pay your money for. And those are the guys we want to see on stage or the women. Doll's House, another example of a play that is they seem to be those are the plays at work and um it's one thing for sure you aim for it you're not going to get it you kind of sort of have to sneak up on it ass backwards and that is what happened with me with this play uh we definitely we were putting this play up i think it was the last thing in anyone's mind this play was going to last more than four weeks it was what in those days we called a kind of a showcase it was kind of going to go up and it was going to go down and it wasn't it wasn't being featured at the public it wasn't their big production of the year it was going to happen in the early summer and it did but that was good luck for me in fact it was good luck in both that play and suburbia because in both cases when it came time to extend we had these big these empty periods of time where the theaters could extend us before we wrap up i want to ask about your play humpty dumpty because i read that it was a play you were to some degree struggling with and the impact of 911 on that play and where it went to and and how it got done can you tell a little about that play and and what that that obviously singular event in so many people's lives meant for you as a writer and with relation to that play well i write a lot of the plays I write about or the things I write about are sort of what-if situations. And one I wanted to look at was what happens in a world where pretty much the way we live is so conceptual. I mean, if I told – you know, you just listed all these things when I came in. You know, I'm nominated for this or I did, I got that award. It's just words. And yet somehow it – does it make people think differently of me? So – and yet there's a real world out there where people have to be able to know how to fix cars and build a fire and hunt animals or feed themselves or whatever. I wanted to bring these two worlds together and it's a survival story that um, – comes up every now and then. There's a wonderful book out right now by Cormac McCarthy called Road that's, that, that explores similar ideas. Uh, where I was, the thing that was inspiring me to write this was not only my own attachment to the to the conceptual in my own life. You know, um, who, who's my agent? How much money is in my bank account? Things that aren't actually concrete but are in my head all the time. But at the time, there was this thing called Y2K, which everyone has forgotten about, which was going to bring everything to an abrupt halt and nothing was going to work anymore and we were going to all be thrown back into the dark ages. didn't happen, but that was what got me started writing the play. And uh, Y2K was the year 
1999 to 2000. So I was writing it in the course of 2000, and then they decided to do it at the McCarter Theater. Joe Bonney was directing. And uh, the attacks happened, you know, nine blocks south of where I live, and it it was shattering. And furthermore, in a weird way, it seemed to have something to do because we were left without phones. We were we were caught unawares, and I think it it was very much in our minds at the time. Like what what would happen if everything just fell apart? And so the play kind of became an echo. And I actually, at the time, I wanted to stop writing, stop doing everything. And uh, and Emily Mann insisted that we continue with the play and uh, that I really look at it and stick with it. And uh, very pleased. And, and what's what's interesting is that Michael Lawrence, who played a, a, a one of the leads in that, is now appearing in talk radio by almost coincidence, other than the fact that he's a terrific actor. But uh, it's really cool to work with him again. You have um, been quoted in the New York Times back in 1983. This is when you were doing your monologues and before you had written talk radio and a lot of the other shows. You had been quoted as saying, I'm not a fun guy that challenges to do the dark guys, the very dark guys, in terms of your characters. But I, I guess that would also apply to your, your writing. Is that how you, you find characters to be interesting, looking at the darker side of people? Well, I just don't think the happy side of people are, is a very interesting or dramatic. Uh-huh. I don't think uh-huh. there's much there that we want to look at or uh-huh. be interested in. As life, as I get older, I'll tell you this, that uh, my romantic notions of strife and tragedy in life uh, become tempered by the fact that I... I witnessed them firsthand, and then I'm not maybe not so interested in in that kind of drama. It's a drama that appeals to young people, and uh, yet it kind of it is the stuff of drama. It's what makes people plays are usually about these these huge things and huge rippling desires and appetites in people that can't be satisfied uh, and somehow we identify with them. Sometimes everybody identifies all at the same time with an uh, archetypical character like uh, uh, the death of a salesman you know and then uh, the salesman and then suddenly you've got a play that it becomes huge. If, if you were to have to describe yourself how would you describe Eric Bogosian? In what in what terms? In, in any way. Say you were writing your own obituary. How would you describe who Eric uh, was well, as an actor, as a writer, that sort of thing? Well, I've been an actor and I've been a writer for a pretty long time now. I've written in all media. I've, I'm, I, currently, I'm trying to finish another novel. And uh, uh, But, you know, from my perspective, I'm a father of two boys and um, married to an amazing artist in her own right and that's who I see myself as Uh, I came to New York 30 years ago hoping to just be able to make my work to be able to somehow struggle by and make my work it's been a tremendous luxury that I've been able to do that Uh, somehow I I did everything I could to not enter into a, 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 a forum where there's so much of a pecking order and a, a you know success not success and all of that and 
I'm in it, so I, I'm not comfortable with it. I got to be honest. Uh, I prefer to be more uh, involved with the community aspects of the theater. I'm a member of Labyrinth Theater. Um, we had an opening this week for Jack Goes Boating, uh, the the Bob Gladini play, and it's uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful being there at that opening night. For me, that's what theater's about. Um, in that way, I think it's almost revolutionary. I just feel like I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm the luckiest guy around, and I and I get to do Law and Order too, which is cool. <laughs> Before we let you go, I want to ask very quickly. You keep talking about yourself. You talked through this entire interview about I'm being sorry. a theater guy. No, no, no. We wanted you to, but <laughs> why write novels then? What did what do you have the opportunity to express in a novel that you can't express through theater, which is so obviously your passion? Well. I really think that whatever artistic and genuine artistic impulse there is, it, it has to work between the artist and an audience. And I honestly felt stymied in not being able to find my audience with my more recent plays. I the last I, I don't know how it happened. I wrote all I wrote plays that were very successful twenty years ago, fourteen years ago. I wrote uh, six off Broadway solos that also did very well. And yet I can't get my plays produced in New York at the moment. So I got very frustrated. I, I And at the same time, a sort of new world of literature was developing uh, with some wonderful writers and, and, and able to really find their audience in a way that, uh, honestly, I don't think those people are in the theater right now, an audience that is, you know, in their 30s and is interested in the big questions. And so uh, hopefully they're going to come and see talk radio, but... Uh, you can pick up books that are exciting and are addressing that stuff. You know, I come from a, a very, what is now an old-fashioned idea, which goes back to almost like Bob Dylan. When I'm writing, I'm writing about stuff that's important to me. I'm not writing it to be an entertainer. And I really want to feel when I'm engaged with something that that's what those people are doing. I feel that in the literary world right now, and that's why I write books. I'm probably not a particularly good book writer, but I try. Um, I'd rather be doing it in the theater but I don't get the, the outlets that I wish I could get. And I don't blame anybody for that. It's just economics, I guess. Hmm. Well, a husband, a father, a playwright, an actor, currently starring Law & Order, show running on Broadway. Sourball, you... ungrateful <laughs> Sourball. Anything you haven't done that you'd like to do that we should be looking forward to in the future? Um, uh, gee, I guess I'm still waiting to be a bad guy in a James Bond movie, but uh, I don't know if that... <laughs> Under that, Siege 2 wasn't enough for that you? Was, that was good, but I, I, uh, I, I still want... I want to get into James Bond thing. And on that note, Eric Bogosian, thanks so much thanks for being for with us me. today on Downstage Thank Center. You. Thanks, Eric. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, 
Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.